Thanks, Greg. It's wonderful singing and worship to God with you. So good to be with you. I see so many new faces. I'm so encouraged by that, encouraged to meet you. So many people, I feel like I don't even have time to meet them all today. And even to say hi to all of you, I already know. But it is a wonderful pleasure to be back in your company. Of course, we want to remember Pastor and Jane. But I'm thankful for the opportunity to bring the word to you Today, we're going to be back in Isaiah 55. If you remember, in December, I preached one sermon from the beginning of this passage, and I kind of summed up the rest of it at the end of the sermon, but now we actually get a chance to explore what the rest of the passage says. So I feel good about completing that. I'm going to try to use a PowerPoint with today's sermon. This is new for me. Pastor's a little bit more technologically advanced than I am with his uh, PowerPoints. So bear with any issues that come up with the PowerPoint today. Let's pray the Lord's blessing as his word goes forth. God, Holy Spirit, please be with me now. Help me to be able to explain the word as I ought. Your word is great. It is meant to move us and change us. Please, Holy Spirit, work among your people. Christ, build up your church now. Oh, Father, please help us. Help me to be able to explain this word clearly and accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jesus once asked a very thought-provoking question to his disciples. In Luke 18, verse 8, you don't need to turn there, Jesus had just finished teaching a, par- a parable showing that God's people should not lose heart in prayer. And Jesus promised that God would hear his people's prayers and would not delay to bring about justice for them at the perfect time in response to their prayers. But then Jesus asked this question. He said, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus doesn't answer his own question, and nobody else does either. He left it for his disciples and for us to ponder. When Jesus finally comes as the ultimate answer to the prayers of his people for justice and deliverance, will he actually find faith? on the earth, and even among his people? If Jesus were to come back today, what would he find? Would he find faith among us at Calvary? Would he find faith in your heart? Would he be able to examine your life, how you live, how you talk, how you think, and how you pray, and say, oh, you have great faith, Or would he, with a look of disappointment, say to you, just as he said numerous times to his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. What would he say to our church? Truly, faith is core to what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus. But it is something in which we also all need to grow. How often have we despaired and become depressed in our lives because of lack of faith? How often have we turned to deceptive and destructive sins because we simply do not believe God? How often have we failed to witness Christ to the world because we do not trust God? Yet this is not our doomed lot. Whatever may have happened in the past, God has sent forth His Spirit so that His people 
need not live in the same failing faith day after day. But rather, His Spirit changes us, molds us, makes us into men and women strong in faith. As strong as the apostles who were challenged to stop preaching in Acts 4 and 5 that we examined in Sunday school, and they didn't. That was by the Spirit. And even as strong as Stephen, who stood in the midst of a murderous assembly and preached Christ. That same Spirit that was in them is in us if we belong to God. And what does that Spirit do but strengthen and embolden us? With the Word of God. So this morning, I want us to return to the book of Isaiah, to the Word of God, so that the Spirit might strengthen us in faith, that we might repent of our faithlessness and behold afresh why we ought to trust our wonder-working God. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah 55. Page 738 in the Pew Bible. Recall the situation that Judah faces in Isaiah. This was a prophecy to Judah primarily. The kingdom is in a time of great uncertainty. Judah has experienced prosperity under its mostly good kings, but the people are actually idolatrous, syncretistic, and hypocritical in their obedience and worship to God. Meanwhile, the Assyrian Empire was sprawling. It was the new superpower in the Middle East and swallowing up the neighboring kingdoms. Already in the midst of the book of Isaiah, we see the northern kingdom of Israel destroyed and the survivors exiled. Would Judah be next? Did God abandon his people? Has he annulled his covenant with them? And what should Judah do? What should the people of Judah do? Should they seek out alliances with other kingdoms? Should they just bow to Assyria? Should they seek the help of various gods, cover all the bases, serve Yahweh at the same time? What should Judah do? God gives the answer to his people graciously in the prophet Isaiah. And the answer to their situation, and the answer to any situation that we find ourselves in, whether security seeming security, or apparent danger, it is to trust God and his plans, to have faith in Yahweh. Roughly the first half of the book of Isaiah details what God is going to do. You remember this from last time, maybe. What does God say he's going to ooh, wrong one. What does God say he's going to do? Well, he is going to judge Judah. Judah's sin would bring the conquest of the nation by Babylon and exile. But that's not the end of it. God is going to later bring Israel and Judah back to their land. He's going to forgive the people for their sins. He's even going to judge and destroy Israel's enemies. And then he's going to bring his people into a prosperous kingdom on a curse-reversed earth. This is what God's going to do. That comes in the first half of Isaiah. In the second half of Isaiah, it's more about how God's going to do that. How could we possibly be forgiven and restored when we're such a sinful people? Three main answers to that question Isaiah brings out. God's going to accomplish these things, these things, first of all, by his powerful word. He's the creator. He speaks things. They happen. He's going to make this happen. He's also going to accomplish it by his suffering servant, a special anointed one, Messiah who will come. He's going to bring these things about. And finally, God himself will come as conquering king. 
and he will reign with his people on the earth. Now, our passage, Isaiah 55, is like an application section based on many of the things that Isaiah declares in his book. Based on all that all God reveals he's going to do. <clears throat> the people of Judah, based on what God says he's going to do, are to repent of their lack of faith in God and repent of their deeds of wickedness that stem from their lack of faith. They are to not seek Yahweh along with other gods, but seek Yahweh exclusively, trusting him to take care of them as his future plans unfold. Now, I'm going to review a little bit of what we discussed last time, but let's first reread the first seven verses of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, 1-7. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is where we ended last time. We saw from the first part of Isaiah 55 three astonishing appeals from God toward his rebellious people that they might repent and trust him. In verses 1 to 2, God's appeal is come to the God who gives generously. God offers a deal to his people that no other god or idol could possibly match. These god substitutes, while attractive, they cannot really give anything good. They actually take everything that the people have. This is what idols do. But God will give what is truly good, he says. And it will be without cost and without limit if his people will return to him. That's God's first appeal. God's second appeal is to listen to the God who saves forever. We, saw, we see this in verses 3 to 5. God offers to give the repentant an interest in the Davidic covenant. That was that special promise that God gave to David, that David, David's house would forever reign on the throne of Judah, and that one from David's line would reign forever. This descendant of David is further described in these verses. He will not only come to save his own people, but all the nations of the world. God has already determined to eternally glorify this coming seed of David. And he offers that his people may have a part in this coming Savior if they will return to God, if they will repent. And then one final appeal in verses 6 to 7. God says, return to the God who forgives totally. God said he has made himself near and will be found by all those who seek for him by admitting their wickedness 
and turning from their sins. There is, just as there's no limit to God's generosity and wealth, there is no limit to his compassion and forgiveness, which he's able to exercise toward those who repent. Doesn't matter what sins, doesn't matter how many people. God says, if you will admit your spiritual bankruptcy, my people, and forsake your evil ways and thoughts, then you will gain God and you will be forgiven. So these are the three appeals we looked at last time. Astonishing that God would say this to his rebellious, hypocritical people. Now the mode of God's appeals for his people to return to him are motivating enough to bring about repentance and trust. But in addition to these three astonishing appeals, God gives reasons, what I'm calling three arresting reasons, for why his people should return to him and trust in his promises. These reasons, like the three appeals that we've previously looked at, they are drawn from what God declares elsewhere in Isaiah. But they're concisely presented in this passage so we might understand a ready and clear argument from God. Let's now read the second half of Isaiah and hear the reasons that God calls his people, originally Judah, but also us today, to return and trust God. Verses 8 to 13. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up and it will be a memorial to Yahweh for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. So what are the three reasons God presents here for why his people should trust him? Number one, God's ways are transcendent. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Number two, God's declarations are successful. We see this in verses 10 to 11. And then number three, God's designs are joyful, verses 12 to 13. Let's look at each one of these reasons in turn. The first reason that you, this morning, here at Calvary, or listening wherever you are, first reason that you should trust your wonder-working God is because God's ways are transcendent. God's ways are transcendent. And what does transcendent mean? Basically, it means beyond normal human thinking, or experience. Look at verse 8 again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. Notice that there's a reference back to verse 7 here. In verse 7, in his third appeal, God exhorted the wicked man to forsake his way and forsake his thoughts because they're evil. But now God is calling attention to God's ways and God's thoughts. And what characterizes man's ways and thoughts? We've already seen a little bit in verse 7. 
Man's ways are characterized by sin, imperfection, limit. In contrast, God's ways are completely righteous and perfect. In the same manner, man's thoughts are shallow, faithless, and often evil. But God, his thoughts are deep. His thoughts are faithful. His thoughts are good. What's the point of bringing out this contrast? Well, God is saying, you can trust me, my people, because while your own thoughts might lead to despair, doom, and evil, remember that my thoughts are way different than yours. My thoughts are deep. My ways are good. My plans are all perfectly righteous. And God reinforces this concept by analogy in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Not only are God's ways and thoughts different, but they are higher. They are more lofty. They are more transcendent. They are superior. Now, just how much higher are the heavens than the earth? According to space.com, Earth's atmosphere is about 300 miles high, though most of the atmosphere is within 10 miles of the Earth's surface. It's a pretty long way, 300 miles. And ancient Hebrews had no idea of this distance, so the edge of Earth's atmosphere to them probably seemed endlessly distant. But we're not just talking about the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. All the heavens are in mind here. And to the Hebrews, that would include the stars, the planets, even the galaxies, any celestial body. So how far are those things from the earth? Planets, stars, galaxies. It's a very long way. Even with all our scientific advances, we have not found the edge of the heavens, the edge of the universe. We probably will never be able to do so. And you know what God says? That unfathomable distance from earth to the edge of the heavens is how much higher my thoughts and my ways are from yours. You think you know something. What would be good? What would be right? What would be most enjoyable or profitable in a certain situation? But you have to recognize, oh tiny human that you are, that the God who dwells in heaven knows way better than you do. So what should you do in response? Trust him. Have faith. Let thoughts of faith be what informs your feelings. And do not yield to the temptation to think and act according to your shallow, misguided flesh. And isn't this what the rest of the scriptures say? Reminding us how different God is from us so that we might trust him? Consider Job's experience. Job demanded an audience with God so that that God might explain what he's doing in Job's life. God granted Job's request. But he didn't tell Job what was going on. He just reminded Job who God is. And listen to Job's response in Job 42, verses 3, 5, and 6. This is kind of the end of God's conversation with Job. Job says, Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. 
That was Job's conclusion. Solomon says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8, and you know these scriptures, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. That's Solomon's wisdom, spirit-given wisdom to us. Also, the words of Paul are relevant here. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. This is after Paul has finished his long discussion of salvation. He concludes with this, Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So Calvary, what about you when it comes to recognizing this about God? Have you been unwilling to trust in the Lord because his promises or his words don't seem to be working out the way that you think they ought? Have you been questioning his wisdom, his faithfulness? Have you been leaning on your own weak understanding? Have you not yet learned the folly of doing this? Have you not yet humbled your thinking before God? Humbled your soul? Because you know what the scripture says. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's James 4.10. So listen then to this first reason from God to trust him. God's ways are transcendent. But God's ways are not confined to heaven. They actually come down to earth in tangible, verifiable ways. Which, was, which is what God goes on to explain in the next two verses. Here's the second reason to trust God. God's declarations are successful. God's declarations are successful. How successful? 100%. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God has just been speaking about heaven and earth and the distance between the two. But now God speaks about heaven and earth in a different but related analogy that has to do with God's declared word, God's word of command. God pictures for us rain and snow, really the hydrological cycle. We're even more familiar with that based on what happened yesterday. God says, rain and snow do not fall from on high to the earth without accomplishing some specific purposes. What's the purpose of these things coming down? God says they water the earth. In the middle of verse 10, they water the earth. And not only that, but the rain and snow specifically, it says, cause the earth to bear plants and sprout. That's pretty easy to observe, right? Rain makes plants grow. One proof? Go to a desert climate. See a lot less green and a lot more brown because there's not very much rain. But it's more than that. God doesn't just have any old plants in mind and sending rain. Look at the end of verse 10. 
it says that rain and snow furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Who are the sower and the eater? Well, people, of course. And perhaps animals are in mind too. But what's the difference between a sower and an eater when it comes to growing plants? The sower looks for the plants to give him something for the future. He doesn't eat all that comes out of the ground. He takes some of it to sow back into the ground so that he can get more food next time when the rain causes more plants to grow. But the eater, he takes what the ground produces and he makes it into food that he can have right now. So what are we seeing that rain and snow do? They come from heaven. They provide for man's needs, both in the present and in the future. And once these things have been provided, where does the water go? Back to heaven. So it can do the same thing the next time God needs to send it. Now it's important we make these observations about rain and snow because of what this analogy ultimately relates to. God tells us what it relates to in verse 11. It points to God's commanding word. Now notice I'm being very specific about how I describe the kind of word we're talking about here. Because the Bible describes God's word in a couple different senses. I'm going to mention three. God's word can refer to his word of decree. Which is the kind that we see in creation. Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. He spoke words. There were words. And things happened. Light appeared. Psalm 33, 6 says it this way. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So God's word can refer to his word of decree. It can also refer to his inscripturated word. This is the sense we're most familiar with when we talk about the word of God. This is the sense we hear in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul is commending the church when he says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So God's word can refer to the gospel, to what is scripture. God's word can also refer to the incarnate word. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. We see this especially in John's writings. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Word of God can refer to different things. When God says, my Word, here, what is he referring to? Many have concluded, or simply assumed, that this verse talks about Scripture, the power of God's gospel to change people and the world. Many eminent theologians, both alive and dead, have taken this verse this way. I respect these men, but I'm going to argue that this sense does not best fit the context, both the immediate context of this chapter and also the wider context of Isaiah. Yes, there is an application from these verses regarding the inscripturated word. There's even an application from these verses regarding the incarnate word. But the originally intended sense of my word in this verse, verse 11, is God's word of command, like the word at creation. Let me point you first to a few passages that came earlier in Isaiah that lead me to this conclusion. I mentioned to you last time that Isaiah chapters 40 to 48 are chiefly concerned with God 
showing that it is by his commanding word, his declared word, that he's going to make his plans come to pass for Judah, Israel, and the world. It's God's powerful word, the ability to declare what will happen before it does and then make it happen that God highlights in those chapters, and he directly contrasts it with the impotence of idols, the inability of, the, of false gods to do anything. Look at Isaiah 41. You can turn there. Isaiah 41, verses 22 to 27. Here's one of the things that God says relating to his word. Starting in verse 22, Isaiah 41, 22 to 27. Speaking of false gods or anything else that's going to compete with God. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name. He will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Or from the former times that we might say, he is right. Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly, I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. See that dr dramatic contrast there? You're not able to declare what's happened. You're not even able to do anything. But look what I'm able to do. And I am doing it. We see another example of this in the next chapter. Isaiah 42, verse 9. I'll just highlight this one verse. Isaiah 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Or the next chapter, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 10 to 13. Isaiah 43, verses 10 to 13. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declare Yahweh, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Again, see that contrast. See what he's emphasizing in, those, in these verses about God's declarations. And one more. And I think this is the most clear. Isaiah 44, verses 24 to 28. Isaiah 44, verses 24 to 28. Listen to what God says here. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, reference back to creation, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back, and turning their knowledge, knowledge, into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. 
and of the cities of Judah. They shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. We could point to more verses like this. We see the same kind of thing in Isaiah 45, Isaiah 46, Isaiah 48. Like a hammer driving in this nail, God keeps emphasizing the same point. I am the sovereign creator God. I declare things and they happen. It's been true in the past. You can verify it. It's going to be true in the future. You will see that everything I have declared to you will have its fulfillment. So, when we get to Isaiah 55, 11, this is all in the background. This is why I say the word that God refers to here is God's declaration, word of declaration, his word of decree. It is this sense that God is speaking of his word. This also comes out in the immediate context of Isaiah 55, 11. Turn back to Isaiah 55. Right before these chapters are various proclamations about what God will do. This is where we see the chapters about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, right? Those are prophecies. Those are declarations about the future. And even in Isaiah 55, we see more proclamations about the future. Right in verses 12 and 13. But where is Scripture specifically highlighted in these verses or in this context? There is a relation to Scripture God's declarations and promises are featured in Scripture. That's why I say there is an application of Scripture here. But this is about God's promises, God's declarations, God's commands, that kind of word. And what is God saying about those things? Let's tie this back to the analogy he's just presented. What is God saying about his declarations? That they will never be made in vain. They will be 100% successful. Look again at verse 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Just as rain and snow accomplish exactly what God desires, watering the ground, producing plants, even producing provision for man in the present and future, so God's declarations about what will happen will not fail. They won't come back to God and say, sorry, we tried. They don't dare return to God until they do exactly what he wanted. God's word succeeds 100% of the time. But someone will say, well, what about when it looks like God's declaration has failed? Remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about the creator whose word made the world. Will any of his words actually fail? If it looks like his word has failed, it's because A, God's word has not yet been fulfilled, but will be. Or B, God's word was fulfilled in a way that people did not expect. For example, and this relates to Sunday school, God promises in his word that he will provide for and protect his people so that they need not worry. But then we hear about a Christian missionary who's killed in a car accident along with his entire family. Did God's promise for that Christian and his family fail? He said he'd protect and provide. Well, no, his promise didn't fail. That actually, in God's transcendent way, his good and transcendent way, that was God's provision. 
That was God keeping his promises. Remember Paul. Right before he died, he said, God's going to bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Lord will protect me from every evil attack, even though I'm about to be executed. Because he saw that was God's way of keeping his promise. That was God's perfect provision. So it is when any of us suffer trials or lack of resources, God's promises do not fail. God is rather ordained that we would glorify him through that specific provision. A temporary or perhaps an ongoing trial. That is God's way of keeping his promise. Even through that trial, God will provide just like he promised he would. Was this not the same with Israel and Judah? As I mentioned to you in the background, Judah and Israel were saying to themselves, God, we're about to be destroyed. We're about to be taken into exile. What about your promises to us? But God says, remember. Remember, I'm the creator. All that I have declared will come to pass. Like rain from heaven. My declaration will not come from heaven, go down to the earth, and then return to me without fully accomplishing my desire and my purpose. So, trust me. My word will prove true. Have faith. So, Calvary, what about you when it comes to this principle? Has God placed you in a situation where his promises have been tested? Has the devil seductively placed in your ear the idea that God has forgotten you? He's abandoned you. He decided he doesn't need to keep his promises to you. You should feel depressed. Or because of some challenge or problem, have you been continuously continuously playing out in your mind all the terrible scenarios that you might find yourself in? Oh, what if this happens? Oh, how will I ever get through that? Are you turning the problem over and over again in your thinking through worry? Do you realize that what you are imagining is actually a false world, a false universe, a reality that can never be? Because what you imagine is a world in which God does not exist or a world in which God exists, but he doesn't or can't keep his promises. That's not reality. Listen to this word. God's word can never fail. He's the creator. His word has power. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. If he's a shield, he's never going to fail you. He's never going to leave you derelict or unprotected. You can trust his word. So this is the second reason to trust God. Trust your one working God because his declarations are always successful. Now God wants to add one more reason that flows out from his word always proving true. Because what is it that God has ultimately promised, declared for his people? It is blessing, salvation, and joy. That is the ultimate declaration. And we see it in the third reason for why we should trust God. Trust God because God's designs are joyful. God's designs are joyful. Look at verse 12 again. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. As before, verse 12 features a tie-in with the previous verses. If you look at the beginning of verse 12, it says, You will go out. That phrase 
parallels what we see in verse 11, where it says, so will my word be which goes forth. Same Hebrew verb, just translated slightly differently. Go out, go forth. Same meaning. And there's a relation to those two words. Because God's declared word goes forth, you will go forth. Go forth how? With joy. Isn't that amazing? God's transcendent purposes and his declarations ultimately have our good, even our joy in mind. God tells his people they will go forth in joy. He also says they will be led forth in peace. This is a passive verb construction. The one doing the leading is not mentioned. But who is the one who will lead them? From the rest of Isaiah, we can say it's God himself. Just to show you one instance of this, Isaiah 40, verses 10 to 11, just listen to it. Isaiah 40, verses 10 to 11, God declares to his people, Behold, Yahweh, or the Lord Yahweh will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend the flock, tend his flock, in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. God himself will lead his people like a shepherd. There'll be no threat, no insecurity, just total protection, total peace, total wellness, total shalom. What is all being described here? Is this just some sort of ambiguous thing about the future? Or is this an actual event? Well, if we look at the rest of Isaiah, we see that one of the things that the Lord has been highlighting through his prophet is the arrival of God's future kingdom. The arrival of God's kingdom. What we see here is really another description of the restoration of Israel and Judah in the coming kingdom of Messiah. We don't have time to go through the various passages that parallel this, but let me just summarize some of the things Isaiah says. God's people will be gathered from all the nations of the world to dwell once again with God in Jerusalem. God will restore a united kingdom of both Israel and Judah into one. And his Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. In those days, all the nations of the earth will seek Yahweh. They'll even seek to attach themselves to the Jews going up to Jerusalem. And it will be indeed a time where God's people will go forth with joy and be led by God in peace. And notice the extent of the joy that's described here in verse 12. Nature itself is getting in on the, on the act. The mountains and hills are shouting in joy because of what God is doing. And the trees are said to be clapping their hands. Now, is this literally happening? I doubt it. Trees can't clap and mountains can't shout. But the idea is that the created world is rejoicing at the fulfillment of God's purposes regarding his people. You see, natural creation actually has a stock in the fulfillment of these kinds of promises for God's people. Because when God's children reach their consummate joy, creation will also be restored. Isn't this what Paul says in Romans? Romans 8, verses 19 to 21. Romans 8, 19 to 21. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When God's people are 
restored and glorified. So is creation. This is exactly what verse 13 goes on to describe. Look at Isaiah 55, verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to Yahweh for an everlasting sign that will, which will not be cut off. You see, few things are more emblematic of the curse on sin in the world than thorns. This is one of the things that God told Adam immediately after the fall. Genesis 3, 17 to 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. So thorns came almost immediately with the fall. They're emblematic of the fall. But God says one day there won't be any more thorns. The curse will be reversed. Instead of thorn bushes, cypress trees. Instead of stinging nettles, myrtle trees. And Isaiah has much more to say about this special day. Animals will be at peace with one another and eat plants, Isaiah 65. All weapons of war will be abolished, Isaiah 2. God's enemies will be totally vanquished, Isaiah 24. The world will serve God as he reigns from Jerusalem, Isaiah 25. There will be perfect justice and administration from God, Isaiah 9. And the whole earth will be full of the glory of Yahweh, Isaiah 6. This is a great day to which God's people are headed. He's been describing it throughout the prophecy. He mentions it again here. Now, verse 13 mentions an it. It will be a memorial to the Lord. What's the it? Well, it refers to everything that Yahweh has just said he will do, causing the people to go forth in joy, leading the people himself, causing the earth to rejoice and be restored. All of this will be a commemoration or a memorial to Yahweh. Interesting, the Hebrew is literally, it will be to Yahweh for a name. It will be to Yahweh for a memorial. That is to say that all this will be done to the glory of God, to the eternal glory of God. You see also that God's ways are not only destined for our good, but for his glory. Those, things are, those two things are actually inseparable. God's glory is our good. And these things will not be forgotten. They will be permanently remembered. God's greatness will be permanently... Um, these, will, these will be testimonies to the greatness of God eternally. Notice verse 13 is emphatic about this, giving both the positive and the negative. For an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. There's a double emphasis. It will last past the ability to count the days, and it will not be cut off. When God changes the earth and brings forth his people in joy, no one will be able to stop him, and his works will forever testify of his greatness, his love, his faithfulness to his people. Now again, I say all of this is describing the coming millennial kingdom of God through Messiah. This is the one that the people of the Old Testament constantly looked, especially the latter prophets. This is the one that even the New Testament apostles looked. It is the kingdom that Jesus announced while he was on the earth, the one that he went away to receive, and is the kingdom that will be given to him once his enemies have been placed under his feet and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, don't misunderstand. This is promised to Israel and Judah here, but that doesn't mean that you're left out. The glorious kingdom of God that was promised to the nation of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament has become one in which Christians are fellow heirs. 
by the gospel of Christ. That's a truth repeated in the New Testament multiple times. You are fellow heirs of God's household, fellow heirs with the saints, even you Gentiles. That's what many of us are. So if you belong to Jesus this morning, these words are for you. This promise is for you. You will go forth in joy. You will be led in peace by Christ. Creation will rejoice over you. You will be part of the coming kingdom of Christ. You will will even rule in it with him. God's design is for your ultimate joy, just as it is for his people. That's what Jeremiah 29.11 says, right? I know the plans I have for you. God was saying that to Israel, but it's also true of us. It is for our good, though, and this is what many people forget about Jeremiah 29.11, those plans will involve many trials in this present age. But don't forget, they conclude in your ultimate joy. And you can taste that joy even now if you have faith in God. So, Calvary, one more time I ask you, what is your response in the face of this truth? Do you look forward to the ultimate glory and joy to be revealed, both in the coming kingdom of Christ and the eternal state of God, with a new heavens and a new earth? Or are you looking for all your satisfaction right here and right now? Do the troubles you encounter cause you to doubt whether God really has your ultimate joy in mind? Do you feel convinced that because God doesn't give you what your flesh wants and feels like, that he really doesn't care for you? Have you believed the same lie that God, not God, that Satan gave to Eve, that God is holding out on you? He's keeping you back from what is good because he's actually deceptive, miserly, and cruel. He doesn't want to give you what you really need or what you would really enjoy. Have these been your thoughts? Let these things no longer be. Repent and trust God. Psalm 84.11 says, For Yahweh God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. God is a God of joy, and he's intent for his own glory of giving joy to his people. But in his way, in his best way. Brothers and sisters, God gave Judah and us through the prophet Isaiah more than enough reason to trust him. He's indeed a great and wonder-working God. Beyond his three amazingly generous and astonishing appeals, he gives us these three arresting reasons, reasons that should stop us and arrest us, take hold of our thinking, for us to have faith in him. And you see them there on the screen. God's ways are transcendent. They're far deeper and better than we can understand. God's declarations are successful, both in the past and in the future. And God's designs are joyful, both during these pilgrim days, but also ultimately when the kingdom comes. So, brothers and sisters, let us shake off the fleshly sloth of the world and exercise fundamental discipleship in Jesus. Believe 
your God. Walk by faith, not by sight before him. Trust and obey, for not a word of his will fail. It hasn't in the past. It's not going to start with you. I should also say, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you've never accepted God's entreaties, his generous entreaties for you to come and repent, I pray that you would now. These promises of blessing can be yours too, but only if you come. You have to come to God in the way that he prescribed in the beginning of this chapter. Come poor and helpless, freely confessing your deep sin, your idolatry, your rebellion before him, and take hold of the bread and water of life, who is Jesus the Nazarene. He lived a perfect life and died an innocent death on the cross in your place. He suffered the just wrath of God, hell, which is the price of sin that you deserved. Believe in him, Jesus, to save you, to totally satisfy God's justice on your behalf and to give you God's righteousness, which makes you acceptable to God. Give up your sinful ways. Submit your whole life to him. Submit to whatever he has planned. Be willing to even go to death for his sake. If you will do these things, you will receive Christ. You will receive his kingdom, and you will receive eternal life. As the apostles say in Acts 4, there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. And as the writer of Hebrews says, woe to us if we reject or ignore so great a salvation. May God grow us all in faith, armed with these promises, so that we need not hear a rebuke ahead of Jesus' coming, but instead a commendation. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this word. You have given us precious and magnificent promises, and it's so that we might actually exercise faith. Oh Lord, forgive us for where we have not done this. By your spirit, God caused us to do this. You've given us more than enough resources. You've shown us your heart, your generous heart. Your powerful word. We can believe you, God. You will not fail. In Jesus' name, amen. We sing our last song.